Is pharmacogenomics having a moment? Next on Mendel's Pod. Welcome to the program. I'm Theral Timpson. She is definitely having a moment. She's the Director of Medical Affairs for Pharmacogenomics at Invitae and former CEO at Uscript. She was recently named one of the 25 leading global voices in precision medicine. She's the author of multiple publications on the clinical benefits of pharmacogenomic testing. She's been interviewed by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, NBC Nightly News, and now she's on our program. Christine Ashcraft is here, everyone. Welcome, Christine. Thanks so much for having me. So am I right in asking, is pharmacogenomics having a moment? Where are we at today in pharmacogenomics? It's it's a great question. I have been in the pharmacogenomics space a little over 20 years, and uh, I have thought that it was ready to be standard of care for a very long time, but I do think we're finally close to a tipping point. Uh, I think there are a lot of things pointing in that direction. One, in 2020, Medicare issued a number of, number of local coverage determinations that dramatically expanded uh, coverage for pharmacogenomic testing that aligned with CPIC, uh, the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium, which is the guidelines body for both evidence-based and actionable drug gene pairs. So if we do this testing, not only do we know it impacts your response, but we can tell you how to modify drug or dose selection, uh, as well as the FDA guidance. Uh, that's always a step in the right direction. As you know, reimbursement is a major barrier to access to biomarker testing in general. That certainly includes pharmacogenomics. Uh, the other things we've seen happen uh, at the federal level, Swalwell and Emmer in February introduced the Right Drug Dose Now Act, which is yes. an act to help I, uh, reduce adverse drug events by addressing barriers to the widespread adoption of pharmacogenomics. Okay, so perhaps this legislation is why we've seen this topic in the news so much this year, and maybe why you know it feels like it's having a moment. Um, maybe, could you go into this legislation a little bit deeper? Sure. Um, there are more details at fourthcause.org slash act if you'd like to learn more about the details, but broad strokes, this asks for an update to the national plan to reduce adverse drug events. Uh, currently, we lose a life every two minutes in the United States to non-optimized medications. To put that in perspective, that's a full 747 every 17 hours. And in 2016, the last time it was measured, we spent $528 billion on non-optimized medications. That is more than we spent on the drugs themselves or on any major chronic disease. Um, so very big problem. Pharmacogenomics will not solve it on its own, but this is a major piece of drug treatment failures and adverse drug events that we don't currently take into account. The uh, act also calls for education, both of providers and of patients. One of the barriers to widespread adoption of pharmacogenomics is unfortunately, there's just not a lot of understanding or knowledge about how evidence-based this is, about CPIC, the guidelines body, so investing in that educational piece, it provides sustained funding for CPIC, Farm GKB, other resources oh, cool. that were originally funded by NIH. Yes. Uh, and it also importantly calls for EHRs to be updated to not flag just for drug drug, 
but also these genetic interactions that are just as important. Let's pick up on the second item you talked about. So you talk about the number of people dying from adverse events. So that's just huge. That's, you know, lives being lost. Um, the second thing you mentioned is the amount we spend on drugs that are just unnecessary, that are just not working because people may have a different genotype. 525 billion or something. Um, 528. Yeah. 528, <laughs> um, which you say is more than we spend on um, medications, I guess, to, to treat um, in the first place. That number... Um, brings up one of the one of the issues that precision medicine has had, or the diagnostic side of precision medicine has had for a long time, and it's it's sort of this built-in conflict between the diagnostics and the therapeutic side, right? Which is an incentive problem. Where um, I, I wonder how it is when you're lobbying, um, do you get pushback from the drug side because they don't want to give up that money? It's, it's a good question, and um, thankfully, uh, Invitae and others are members of PMC, and PMC has actually endorsed the Right Drug Dose Now Act, and they have a lot of pharma cool. uh, in their membership. So we did bring this up. Um, I think that, you know, there's certainly the, hey, we're very aligned with the blockbuster drug model back in the day. Uh, that was a thing. But I think now that more and more we're seeing the FDA mandate diagnostic testing as part of the drug approval process. I think we're moving away from that uh, towards understanding the benefits of this more globally. You've said that the FDA has had drug-drug interaction guidance for years. We just talked about this with the medical records. But they don't have drug-gene interaction guidance. And so to to drill down on this point that you're making about the um, the records, what do you think needs to happen at the FDA? Yeah, so the FDA does have hundreds of product inserts with pharmacogenetic information in them, but they do stop shy of actually recommending testing. So a couple cases in point. One, Plavix. Uh, back in 2010, the FDA put a black box warning on Plavix or clopidogrel saying that patients with a certain pharmacogenetic variation, 2C19, we're much more likely to have a heart attack or stroke because Plavix doesn't work for them or is far less effective. But they stopped shy of actually requiring the testing. Here we are 12 years later, and still most of the time if a patient is prescribed Plavix or clopidogrel, they're probably not getting the CYP2C19 pharmacogenetic test. The state of Hawaii actually just won an $834 million lawsuit against the makers of Plavix for not making it more clear that patients of Asian and Pacific Islander ancestry were more likely to have this pharmacogenetic variation. So really impacted our friends in the state of Hawaii. Uh, another well, that's cool that they won it. Yeah. Uh, so DPYD is a variation that impacts response to 5-FU. And we lose a little over 1,400 lives every year in the United uh, States because of avoidable toxicity um, because they have a DPYD variation. Most people are just intermediate metabolizers. They need about half the dose, according to CPIC, this guidelines body. A very small uh, number are poor metabolizers and so really ought to avoid the medication altogether. So the FDA has, again, stop shy of actually mandating testing. This is something has been recommended in Europe since 2020. It's something that could save lives. This is the safety body for medications, and they really need to take a better stance 
of mandating testing, especially when it could save lives, as in the case of, of those two examples. I mean, usually, I mean, the FDA, FDA is the gold standard around the world for safety. Why are they so slow on this? I think part of it is, um, you know, if you look at the uh, push right now, I think that the FDA feels like they need to have a little more control over laboratory developed tests. I think CLIA is already doing a really great job. If they want additional layers, it should belong under CLIA or maybe New York State Department of Health, which is a, is a tough lab accreditation to jump through. It is through. really tough. Um, but uh, there's been a lot of pushback in the industry. But if the FDA started managing LDTs, I'm very afraid, especially for uh, more rare things that are done in small genetic labs, it's just not sustainable uh, at the pace. Like case in point, the FDA approved pharmacogenetic uh, tests um, are missing alleles that are very, very, very important in certain uh, races and ancestries that are very prevalent in the U.S. I see your point. Um, the FDA sitting there saying, or is this your point? Um, the FDA sitting there saying, how can we require this test when we don't even regulate it? When we don't even check up on the quality of this test? Right. So they do recommend, require or recommend testing if the diagnostic is approved at the same time as the medication. Right. Even Those are the, the, companion di the companion diagnostics, you, right? Which right? they do regulate. Right. But you find more alleles as you do more testing that are more prevalent in non-European ancestries, typically. And so where is the impetus to actually go spend a bunch of money to add more variants that are important when you already have this approval? There isn't. But there is, if you're a CLIA-accredited lab with an LDT, you want to continually improve that and add the additional variants. And there isn't this very expensive and uh, detailed process to move it through that can be a significant barrier. Mm. Yeah, I'm starting to, okay, I'm learning something here. <laughs> um, because, you know, the FDA was going down this path of going to regulate these LDTs and just do the whole shebang. Then they backed off and now we're into this, you know, CLIA um, controlled mm -hmm. world, which a lot of the industry is happy with. Right, because mm -hmm. there's more diversity, more, more innovation, more freedom. Um, but at the same time, it's like the industry wants a little help from the FDA on this one. Yeah. And it's almost like, um, how do you have your cake and eat it too? Right. Am I right? Yeah, and I, I do think that the industry has um, a certain requirement to self-regulate. So I will give huge props to AMP. They have published... Um, some recommendations for what should be included in the core pharmacogenetic tests, CYP2D6, 2C9, 2C19, what tier one and tier two, um, tier one being the absolute minimum for quality, tier two good to include if you're able to, mm -hmm. um, but not required. So they've published these. Yes. It is up to industry to then align around those standards. And so we actually had a meeting uh, the other day a lot of people in the pharmacogenomics community are working to align pharmacogenetic uh, information into ClinVar. Um, but we mm. talked about like the NIH genetic testing register and, and whether we could put a stamp of approval. Hey, mm. these meet AMP. They're doing the minimum of tier one. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they have tier two. They're listed in the genetic testing registry. You know, they, they've they've got the sign of the stamp of approval, so to speak, from the industry at large. Uh, I think there have unfortunately been some bad players. Um, they mm. exist in genetics. And so uh, we want to make sure as an industry, we uh, police ourselves as much as possible. Um, but you should, shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. For sure. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Europe as an example of requiring certain testing to be done, pharmacogenomic testing. So how are they solving this? Um, because they are, they're governing bodies like EMA. They're not regulating LDTs either, right? I don't believe so. I am not, uh, I'm not any type of expert on uh, the regulation in Europe. Uh, okay. Yeah, I just wondered how they were um, solving this. Um, okay, so, uh, so you've mentioned CPIC mm-hmm. a few times. And this is um, this is independent from government. This is sort of like self-regulating, right? Um, well, it's uh, funded by NIH. Um, CPIC is actually owned by HHS, the the trademark or copyright or whatever. Um, huh. And yeah, started at Stanford and St. Jude's, but it is an expert volunteer body that curates the literature to provide evidence-based, actionable guidelines. So not only can we tell you this has an impact, but we can tell you how to modify drugs or doses based on the information. Right, right. So we had the director of Farm GKB, uh, Mm -hmm. Michelle uh, Wuerl-Carrillo, on the program in May of this year, and she talked about how there's no professional society, um, but that they did start CPEC. So, but there is AMP which I guess they're a professional society and they're just sort of reaching over and doing this. Are you, are you happy with um, CPIC and um, the way they're doing this and AMP is doing this as far as providing guidance for clinicians and payers? Is this working? Uh, I think that the guidance is very good, um, but I don't think most people are aware that CPIC exists nor do they agree with it. So a lot of times for reimbursement, for guidelines update. Uh, So NCCN doesn't require DPYD testing for 5-FU. They have not updated their guidelines. Why not? Um, You know, it doesn't make sense. CPIC has guidelines around this. We really need uh, specialty societies to endorse the CPIC guidelines and understand that those are the experts in pharmacogenomics and what you should do with this type of information. Okay. Uh, We need NCCN um, hanging out more with CPIC. (laughs) We need, need, uh, yeah, and the cardiologists and everyone else. I mean, pharmacogenomics is interesting. Like, why is it taking so long to become standard of care? Uh, I was speaking with uh, GC last week, and she was, you know, 20 years ago, I thought this was the one for precision medicine. It makes so much sense, impacts so many medications for cardiology, pain, oncology, GI, behavioral health, like all of these different medications are impacted by this targeted set of genes. And we can help optimize drug and dose selection for life. It seems like a no-brainer. But I think, unfortunately, we have a very siloed healthcare system. And so we sometimes get pushback. Well, I don't want to know what this does outside of behavioral health. I'm like, it's the same genes. It impacts cardiology meds and pain meds. You can't just close your eyes and pretend that doesn't exist. Uh, But in order for it to be adopted, uh, we need all of these different specialty societies to 
understand that there are guidelines and believe in them and adopt them. I, I'm getting it. Yeah. And so you just mentioned standard of care, and this is what you mentioned at the beginning. You said, um, I, you know, we're talking about is it having a moment, and you said in order to get to standard of care. So this is the goal, right, to be standard of care. Mm-hmm. Um, how will you know when that's happening? <laughs> yeah. I think it's starting to happen. Um, so, for example, uh, OHSU just uh, settled a $1 million lawsuit with a widow of somebody, a husband who had died because he had a DPYD variation, was not offered the test, wasn't told that there was an impact. And not only did she win the settlement, but as part of the settlement, they agreed to discuss this testing with anybody that was prescribed a medication that would be impacted by DPYD variation. Um, So a lot of times what we see in standard of care is, oh, Uh, people are getting in trouble for not doing this now. I would hope it wouldn't come to that, but it seems like there are more and more of that. We've got the Hawaii State case, the OHSU case. I think that that uh, shows a tipping point, so to speak, and you're not allowed to not know about this anymore. Um, There's enough evidence to make this something you should do uh, as a provider to protect the safety of your patient. We've had a lot of carrots, now we're getting a few sticks. And the sticks not coming from the FDA, the sticks coming from the court system with punitive damages. Clearly the FDA would help. Uh, In (laughs) 2020, the FDA did publish, I will say this was helpful, a pharmacogenetic associations table. Uh, And this is part of what Medicare covers in testing. They will cover CPIC A or B uh, or FDA Uh, needed for safety. And there's a long list of medications that the FDA says pharmacogenomics matters. Again, they stop shy of saying you really need to test, um, but at least they say it matters. And I will say uh, I had reach out from a number of pharmacy benefit managers when the FDA published that pharmacogenetic associations table. They were like, oh, we need to pay attention now. Mm, At different healthcare um, systems. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's um, talk to us about your vision at Invite. I mentioned your former CEO of Uscript. Invite bought the company a couple years ago. Uh, PGX has been important to Invite all the way along. I mean, like you say, I mean, it's just like this obvious area for uh, genomics. Now they have you, um, a major you know, advocate, leader in this space. What's your vision? Um, what's the company's vision in this area? Yeah, well, as you know, Invitae's mission is to make genetic uh, information accessible and affordable to everyone that can benefit from it, who is everyone. Um, But I think that pharmacogenomics is really the underpinning of lifelong genomic management, right? So you 70% almost of uh, appointments with physicians end in a prescription for a medication. So ideally, you have pharmacogenetic testing done once in your life. This information is stored discreetly, and it continues to be used to provide real-time drug and dose optimization guidance the rest of your life. You also get proactive genetic screening. It's stored. You don't need to know that you're BRCA positive when you're 12 years old, but when you're 18, that information can be utilized to uh, proactively manage your health and keep you from uh, ideally ever developing cancer. So I think that uh, in my mind, Uscript, which has been integrated 
electronic health records since we won the Hims Health 2.0 Open App Challenge in 2013. I think of it like this Trojan horse that goes into the electronic health record. It's like, okay, order pharmacogenetic testing. It's indicated. Okay, now a year later, change this drug or dose based on the information. But once you're in there, you can start layering on all of this other information that provides the real-time evidence on what you should be doing to proactively manage this patient's health to keep them from developing disease rather than reacting when something bad has already happened. Um, so I think it's it's a core piece of this kind of genomic management uh, through life to prevent uh, disease or issues like adverse drug events. Makes a lot of sense. Our conversation till now has been more based on the existing system and working within the system and carrots and sticks. And that's why I love talking to people from Invite um, because it's it's so proactive and um, preventative and, and looking at this and saying, hey, how can we you know do this better? And so what you're talking about is just getting out ahead of the whole game. Right. Nina, it's great that we are expanding guidelines, you know, to do more and more hereditary cancer testing when someone's diagnosed with cancer. But isn't that better information to have earlier in life so you could have more frequent mammograms or maybe consider having a child earlier because you need to have surgery for your best preventative care? Um, those are those are pieces of information you can utilize to make better life decisions, but you need the information uh, in order to do that. Right. So this is one of the core questions um, that has come up when I've done shows on this topic, and that is when to test. Yeah. When to test. Right. That that. What's your take on this question? I mean, obviously, <laughs> your take so far is earlier. <laughs> yeah. But do you well, have any I, more I thoughts think... on the on this question? I have two answers to the question. One, what do I think is going to work in the short term and what would I like to see? So in the short term, uh, Invite does have a patented pharmacogenetic interaction probability score. Uh, So this is based on the current medications for a patient. Hmm. I can say, hey, based on your medications, there is an 85% probability if I test you, I will be recommending at least one evidence-based drug or dose changes to your doctor when those results come back. And we've associated this increased pharmacogenetic risk with increases in healthcare costs, emergency room visits, hospitalizations, length of stay. And we've seen subsequent reductions in emergency room visits, hospitalizations, healthcare costs when the patients are tested and their pharmacogenetic information is used to optimize drug and dose selection. That's a trigger. Uh, You could have a trigger if you're diagnosed with cancer and you get hereditary cancer testing, but those are all reactive. Ideally, we do uh, sequencing when a patient is born, store that information discreetly and continue using it to optimize their care based on the latest evidence with the genome management infrastructure the rest of their life. Uh, But I think we're still in a reactive uh, mode. Uh, We will get to a proactive mode, and I think that's where we need to be. But in the interim, we kind of have one foot in the value-based care boat and one in the uh, fee-for-service boat still. So we have to straddle that and and do what we can to to move it forward in the interim. I love that answer. I love that answer. And yeah, how long (laughs) how long is it going to take to go from one mode to the other? I wouldn't. I won't put you under pressure and ask you that. 
I've, I've said pharmacogenomics was going to be standard of care in five years top since 2000. So I'm not sure if I'm the best one to ask these <laughs> questions. <laughs> no, but you've laid out, uh, you, you've laid out the vision there of what, you know, it could look like, what it really needs to, what it's going to look like. I mean, it just seems so obvious what you're talking about. Um, dealing with, you know, our fee based system now. Um, but where it could, you know, go and where it should go, basically having the information that we have now and even the technology that we have now, really. So, okay, let me ask this. What's the biggest obstacle to get there? This is a fun question for podcasters. (laughs) I think, um, one of the biggest issues to get there is the, um, short horizon for payers. Um, so a lot of times, thankfully we have this, but for pharmacogenomics, we've seen reductions in healthcare costs in as little as 60 days to four months in high-risk polypharmacy patients, which gets their attention. But in the U.S., a lot of times people flip payers every two to three years. Uh, and so if you're talking about investing in something uh, when uh, it may not pay off for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, that is hard in a fee-for-service type system or even a value-based system where people hop around a lot. Uh, and so I think there are people are working on solving that, that problem, but I think that's part of the issue. I know that there are life insurance companies that will cover things um, because they have an incentive to keep people alive. So they'll invest in technology um, that maybe is is not as attractive to to a payer in our current system. But I think that's part of that problem that horizon is too long for some things. And they're like, well, why should I pay for it? They're going to leave me in two years, right? Or three years and have another payer. Um, but I, I think that we need to solve, solve for that. Like so many things, how to make the economic argument to people and how to make it um, simple, direct, and and well. And um, your point is it may be some unusual um, people we don't even know yet or we haven't thought of, like life insurance companies that come by and make this. It may not be the people we think are going to um, <laughs> make this right. argument or buy it. Right. Well, I, I am concerned. I, I'm hoping because the government has done some great stuff in precision medicine that they really lead the charge in this. It's it's the right thing to do to kind of push it through it is. Um, proactively. I, I'm very concerned about, um, what do you call it, the velvet rope economy. Like you get access to precision medicine if you're lucky enough to be at an academic medical center or can pay out of pocket. And that is not the right way to do it. But it's the way we are doing it in a lot of places right now. And, um, yeah, it's not. Um, and, and we have done better in some areas. Uh, like community hospitals or hospitals are getting access to great tests, yeah. for instance, from Invite when it comes to breast cancer, ovarian cancer. Um, so they are getting access to precision medicine in a lot of ways. Um, yes. So just how to translate that for this side. And you would think uh, if we get you know the right um, amount of smart people together, we could make it happen. Right. Well, I know, uh, for example, I'm on the pharmacogenomics um, committee for the American Cancer Society, and they're working on great legislation in different states, uh, biomarker bills that mandate that all the insurance companies in the state cover uh, evidence-based or guidelines-based biomarker testing, regardless of disease state, um, because a lot of times the payers are way, way, way behind. But then, of course, we also have 
patients that don't have insurance, um, can't cover the out-of-pocket costs. Um, I know Invita and a lot of other labs, you know, try to help with that, but uh, we we need a, a scalable solution to make sure that everyone has access to this that needs it. Yeah, that's that's super cool, and I I um I want to stay updated with you on what you know what you come up with in that group. Um, I remember um, it was just a couple years ago the FDA moved um, from considering um, cancer per organ to thinking of it molecularly. And that sounds like a simple change, but I think it's going to have dramatic long-term consequences. So that was just one example, I think, where a shift caused by precision medicine um, was a good thing long-term for healthcare. Definitely. Right. I think in the long term, just the the studies that I've been involved in in pharmacogenomics, you know, dramatic reductions in emergency room visits, hospitalizations, even death and healthcare costs. Like it turns out when you apply science to decision making, it has better outcomes than if you just guess. I know that's really <laughs> crazy. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how well. The... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a good laugh. Um, yeah. Um, in fact, it caused me to forget what I was thinking about. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I was just wondering how much uh, this argument – do you have this argument with um, people in your – or I'm sure you talk about this with people in your family who are not in the industry. How well mm-hmm. do you think the average person knows – about DY1, I can't even remember the gene you've talked to. Her. Yeah, most most people know. Um, I will say one of the other things that um, really irks me, uh, I know this happens with our genetic counselor friends as well, but pharmacists are not federally recognized as healthcare providers. They go to school just as long as medical doctors, uh-huh. and they study pharmacology, how drugs interact, and you know who knows about those SIPs or cytochromes? pharmacists really well. They're the natural healthcare provider to help implement this. They're perfect. They should be able to order it. They should be able to, it should be able to get billed to Medicare if they order it. They should be paid to review this and take it into account. But that is not the way our system is set up. They're absolutely ideal. And the same, genetic counselors. I'm like, they should be paid by Medicare when they're providing services. Uh, we are doing some really ridiculous things in terms of not aligning uh, reimbursement with the experts that would really make the most sense in this. But talking to individuals, I will tell you virtually everyone I talk to has either personally had a problem with a medication or had a friend or family member that had a bad reaction to a medication or had one not work for them. They understand that. And when I say, oh, it's very, very common that that is caused by pharmacogenetic variability. More than 99% of patients have at least one pharmacogenetic variation that on average causes them to have an atypical response to over 10 commonly prescribed medications. This is not rare. This impacts virtually everyone. Um, they get that, even if they don't remember the SIP2D6. The, the exact um, signature. <laughs> yeah. And I have heard it several times um, uh, from people you know, in my family who um, were tested, got the result from a d- uh, direct-to-consumer um, mm-hmm. company, and, they, and so that's how they learned about it. Um, but not so much through the medical system, but I totally get your point about pharmacists and I'm going to go from this next time I go to the pharmacy, I'm going to ask my pharmacist who I know by name, chat with him all the time, um, what he knows about this topic. Um, because I think you're very right. They are frontline workers on this. Uh, 
and of course genetic counselors, but you know they they're much more knowledgeable about this topic. Do pharmacists get training in genetics? Yeah, so pharmacogenomics has been a mandated portion of accredited pharmacy schools curriculum okay. for a number of years. Now. It has. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So this is all, you know, part of, uh, you know, the effect of genomics on on medicine overall. It's just taking some time. Um, wow, what a fantastic discussion. So finally, put your fun hat on. Um, let's say um, if everything goes super well um, mm-hmm. over this next year or two, what would you like to see happen? Ah, well, we are working on I'm going to refocus it on pharmacogenomics because that's my my uh, yeah no area no pharmacogenomics that I'm, that, I'm no. most fond of but no of uh, course we, we have um, a very large randomized controlled trial right now in process at Christ Hospital Health Network, uh, which is a community hospital. They have uh, embedded ambulatory pharmacists in 30 primary care clinics, cardiology clinic, oncology clinic, and we are seeing incredible impact on patient care. Over half of the interactions we've detected uh, involve pharmacogenomics, so they would be have been missed without testing. We're tracking emergency room visits, hospitalizations, deaths, healthcare costs. Um, I am very, very much hoping that with publication of that, as well as a total cost of care study we have coming out with a major PBM, uh, it will knock over the remaining people that don't think this is ready for prime time, uh, and pharmacogenomics will finally become standard of care. The Right Drug Dose Now Act will be passed. Uh, to address some of the other barriers. So um, that would be my my short-term, very PGX-focused um, ideal. Christine Ashcraft of Invite. So great to finally meet you. What a fantastic discussion. Thank you for, so much for having me. <laughs> I wouldn't go, go up on too many tangents. <laughs>